I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! West Side Show. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo's Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is March 30th, 1992 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in beautiful downtown Los Angeles, where we are honoring the best films of 1991 at the 64th Annual Academy Awards, hosted by our our very uh, own, our very favorite, Billy Crystal. And it is uh, time for the big award of the night, the envelope, please. And the Oscar goes to The Silence of the Lambs. Welcome back to yet another episode of The Envelope, please, everyone. This is a podcast where we watch and discuss every Best Picture Oscar winner in chronological order. And we are your hosts. I'm Sam. I'm Rance. And we have a special episode for you. We thought we would release this episode a little bit earlier for Mm -hmm. spooky, spoopy season since we are talking about one of the only horror films to win so many Oscars. (laughs) We are discussing Silence of the Lambs, and it is heralded as the first horror movie to win Best Picture, but I kind of want to ask you, Rance, do you categorize Silence of the Lambs as a horror movie? Or horror adjacent? Um. I'm assuming we'll probably really break this down later, we will. but um, but I gotta say I do not categorize it as a horror movie. Ooh, interesting. You know what? I don't really either. But you're right. We will get into that uh, toward the later part of this episode. But I just kind of wanted to get your opinion on that real quickly here. <laughs> uh, we um, do have a couple of firsts here in this ceremony. I want to mention here that we have our youngest nominee for best director who was also the first black nominee for Best Mm -hmm. Director, John Singleton uh, for Boys in the Hood. Love this nomination. And I think it's kind of wild that the Oscars uh, chose him out and picked him for this nomination, especially since we're going to talk about this in a minute, a lot of the direction snubs this year as well. But I think this is a fabulous nomination. I'm very happy that he made the cut. Um, 100%. Um, I I think... um... I think there's going to be a lot of uh, discussion on what we might have <laughs> taken out of the best picture race because mm-hmm. um, this is a very stacked category, first of all. Yes. And I can see why it was difficult choosing who ended up in the best director category and who ended up in the best picture category. Because if you look at the picture category, it's it's pretty solid. Yes. If you look at the director ca- category, it's pretty solid. Yes. You know, you have some all-time classics in there. But I think there is a discussion to be said where maybe John Singleton's movie could have not only been in director, but um, in picture as well. Because it's not. Absolutely. Well, he also has a double nominee, remember, too. He also wrote Boys in the Hood, also nominated for that as well. So yes. I I do see a so world where that got... movie gets in Best Picture. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to get both of those nominations and not get... It is, um, isn't it? But it, maybe it's maybe this is like inching forward in the Academy's idea because they're like, well, we gave it, we gave, um, we gave Spike Lee yes. um, 
a screenplay nom. Now look at us. We're giving Jong Singleton a screenplay and, and a best a director, director nod, which yes. is which is not actual. That's not what progress actually is, but it is unfortunately in the long arc of history that is the Academy Awards. This is a big um, moment. It is. I want to mention, too, uh, sort of an iconic moment that happens during this Oscar ceremony that has now been parodied. Uh, well, parodied. <laughs> it gets, parodied? It gets parodied. parodied. I guess it's, it kind of works like a parrot talking. I don't know. Um, but it gets parodied a lot. It's Jack Palance after he wins supporting actor for City Slicker. He rushes up to the stage and does those one-armed push-ups on the stage. And then, of course, Billy Crystal goes completely ham with that for the rest of the ceremony. I didn't mean anything by that. I crap bigger than you. Joke after joke after joke. Um, I mean, and this is the, the ceremony where we get this. I think it's kind of fun. We're so lucky that we get the um, we get the best the best supporting categories so early in the ceremony. So usually, so early, yeah. Because I feel like we get great moments out of that. Also, I feel like I want to be a supporting nominee if I'm ever a, an Oscar nominee because I know I'll get it out of the way and then I can enjoy the rest of the show. A hundred percent. Get the suspense over with. Yes. Um, I just wanted to mention real quickly one more note on John Singleton. Please. Um, uh, let's keep in mind that a black director has not won an oscar yet (laughs) bingo um so this is a big moment but it hasn't happened and um you know i mean spike lee was nominated a couple years ago for black klansman but there was a very controversial moment um a few years ago where uh anna duvernay was not nominated for Selma, even though her movie got a Best Picture nomination. So um, we still have, uh, this is still a category where a lot of the, the prog, if you want to call it progress, um, it, it's, it fits and starts here. I mean, we have, to be fair, the, the last few Best Director nominees, um, five of the last six have been born elsewhere, um, uh, we have had a Latino winner now. We have had an Asian uh, winner now. Um, we've uh, actually had uh, two Asian winners in a row, mm-hmm. which is which is great progress. Um, but just interestingly, we have not had a black winner of Best Director yet, and that's something I hope the um, I hope. I hope we are able to fix in Hollywood. It's a complicated yes. issue to fix because it's beyond just nominating right. a black director. It's also giving the black directors the opportunity to tell their stories. And, and that's that's the main thing because we've already with seen a budget of, in a studio and yeah. yeah, we've already seen examples of white directors telling black stories, getting nominations, winning mm-hmm. even. So you're right. It's kind of this consumption problem where the academy members kind of prefer their white storytellers which we've been talking to death about but you're right just nominating a black director is not enough for a pat on the back you know we need to go further we just have to we have to we have to um but yeah so i'm glad you brought that up um but uh but uh to get back to to good old jack palance i love a good i love a good iconic um Oscar moment and Jack Palance, you know, had um, been just working in the industry forever and ever and ever, 
Um, and, uh, you know, he was, he was in Shane. He I has mean... nominated for <laughs> Shane. Like, we're talking back in the 50s here, he's been getting nominations. I think he actually went the longest time period in between Oscar nominations. I think that's true. Either him or Henry Fonda. One of the two has that record of longest space between nominations. Um, so I'd have to I'd have to do the math. It's very it's very close because close. this is about ten years after On Golden Pond, and Henry right. Fonda, um, Henry Fonda might have him beat because that's I think. Um, oh, actually, here we have con- confirmation. He's tied with Helen Hayes. Actually, thirty eight years in between nominations, him and Helen Hayes have the record. <laughs> there you go. Um. 38 years. But the difference is Helen Hayes did win. She did win, yes, a leading yes. actress first. You're right. Yep, very yes. true. She, she won on her first nomination, and then she won on her second nomination. Of course she did, because so. she's fucking Helen Hayes. Of course she did. <laughs> she's the reason you watch Airpo- uh, Airplane. The reason you watched Airport. The only reason you watch Airport. Anyway, um, in my opinion. Yes. Um, Okay, um, then it, don't watch Airport, just watch Airplane. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, uh, that has nothing to do with 1991. Um, let's, uh, <laughs> let's get into some snub. We've already been kind of teasing this. Let's get into this a little bit. Tell me, Rance, who are, who are some names that were left off of these ballots? Let's, let's get into it. I know that this is a stacked year. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to figure out where to put um, some films. <laughs> but um, perhaps, you know, I, I'm i a big fan of the filmmaker um, slash actor uh, Albert Brooks. Oh, yes. And Albert Brooks uh, is known for making um, very interesting kind of observational comedy um, that's usually very down-to-earth and very slice-of-life. And he made a movie that's a little out of his normal um his normal wheelhouse wheelhouse thank you mm-hmm. uh this year uh called defending your life which is a fantasy that deals with him going to the afterlife um and connecting with uh, a girl who has uh led a literally perfect life and just happened to die young um, and he, meanwhile, has um, led a very pedestrian life of no note. And so he's destined to end up in, you know, kind of like, a, I think, to go back and do it again. Right. And then she's destined to go to the big heaven-like place. So they spend the movie in purgatory finding out what their fate's going to be as they defend their life to like a little um, court basically. And it's such a fun movie in a lot of ways. It's it's very sweet. It's very charming the the romance between Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep. But one of my um one of the reasons I, I absolutely love it is I love the the intensity of the sessions with him deciding what's gonna happen to his life in contrast with when you see Meryl Streep <laughs> and they <laughs> They're just like, um, there's like one point where someone says something to the effect of, uh, uh, let's watch her save the cat again. <laughs> and she saves, a, she saves a cat from a burning building, you know. Um, or she saves, her, she saves her kids and then she goes back and saves the cat. Like, it's like, um, 
it's it's I mean she's just so perfect. She's so how we think about Meryl Streep. Isn't she? And yes, and maybe (laughs) this is not uh, one of her best actress nominations. I I don't think she. uh, you know, she. I mean, this is more Albert Brooks's movie than her movie, um, but I definitely could have seen this being a nomination for Albert Brooks in any category he qualifies for, which includes actor, director, and writer. Um, and uh, I, um, I mean, I personally think it's one of the better movies of the year as well. Yeah. So I love I think that. It's pretty. I think it's hey, pretty darn perfect. Any Meryl Streep movie can break into any category. I am all for that. Um, so that's a snub for me. Okay. Um uh, I will also say, again, it's a stack director category. Mm-hmm. This is the second year in a row that we have had a film directed by a woman get a Best Picture nomination and not get a Best Director nomination. Papa, can you hear me? Yes. And in both cases, it was it was women who are very well connected within the industry. Um, got Penny Marshall, um, who had already directed uh, the humongous hit that was big and Jumpin' Jack Flash whenever she did Awakenings. So you think she would have been in a good position. Well-connected with the industry, very well-known from being on a hit sitcom. Um, Didn't work for her. And then you have Barbara Streisand, who I don't even have to tell you. (laughs) um, Streisand. Streisand. Um, (laughs) Sand. Sand like the beach, as she says. (laughs) This was actually a point of contention because Adele did not say it correctly in her... 73 questions with Vogue. And oh, people, no! And people called her out for it, because she said Streisand. Zand. Um, yes. Uh, maybe it's the accent. It's fine. It could be. You know? I don't know. Actually, Barbara probably wouldn't accept that. She um, she didn't accept it from Siri. She's not going to accept it from Adele. But um, uh, anyway, uh, Barbara... Um, uh, Barbara's one of those women who... Um, I, I almost think that, uh, you know, she's a great example of what sexism looks like in Hollywood because of the the narrative surrounding her being difficult. You know, there was a whole situation with Yentl where, um, you know, they, the crew members ended up, like, writing a letter to combat the reports of her being difficult and having that published in a big paper. And... Um, I think that I think that the eccentricities or the um, the you know more quote unquote high maintenance moments that you have from a Barbara Streisand get all kinds of press and become the narrative and probably cheat her out of maybe getting a best director nomination. Whereas when it's Stanley Kubrick. Um, or someone like that, or David O. Russell for a more David modern, o. Russell, you know, a modern example. Um, their difficult tactics, their uh, which extend to actual abuse of the actors in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, those are treated as eccentric. Those are treated as a part of the process, part of their genius, mm-hmm. and you know, meanwhile, you know. 
Barbara, you know, they are like, oh, you know, she, she only likes to be filmed from this side of her face. Ugh. You know, like, right. I mean, yes. it's just such a... It's, it's a double standard. A, it's a it's such a double standard, and mm-hmm. um, and I think that it, it's important to note that that double standard I think existed around her in a very big way. I think also because her success mirrored um, the timeline of the women's lib movement. We are mm-hmm. into the eighties when we have the backlash against the women's lib movement. Um, into the 90s, uh, where suddenly, you know, we were talking about 1992 and right uh, when this ceremony happened, and this is right around the same time that uh, Hillary Clinton got hammered in the press for saying that she decided to pursue her profession instead of staying home and baking cookies Mm -hmm. um, and having teas and baking cookies. And then she had to apologize to to, uh, stay-at-home moms because that apparently was offensive. And um, <laughs> and then Ugh. they made her have they they made her have a cookie bake off contest with Barbara Bush. Ah yes, we love politics. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm just saying, like that's the frame that we are living in in this period of time. So yes. Barbara's eccentricities, they'll be like, well, your movie was really good, but you're kind of weird. So we're not going to give you that nomination. And I think she's a very famous person for them to almost make that example of whether or not they're intending to do so but um but barbara streisand um is a multi-talented brilliant woman who um who definitely at some point deserved a director nomination for the for really being perhaps um at least in mainstream Hollywood, there were certainly female directors before her. Um, there was one during the studio system named Dorothy Arzner. Um, and uh, there was another woman who got a nomination uh, in the 70s. Um, but I would say as far as mainstream women having directing opportunities, Barbara is a trailblazer. And I, I'm sad that she has not gotten a director nomination because I think she is so pivotal to that glass ceiling. I agree with you. I agree with you. And to be honest as well, I think there are some people who got director nominations this year that I don't really agree with. Like I would take Oliver Stone off the list and I would take Barry Levinson off the list. I don't think we need those names here for movies that in my opinion are very subpar when it comes to their other output in recent years. I really like JFK. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't really care for it. I think it's I l- way too long and it I think really the conclusion long. is really unsatisfying. I think when I saw it, I, I saw it in a theater and there was intermission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, case in point. <laughs> I don't know if it was built in, but they did an intermission. Um, <laughs> but uh I think I was I was ready for something about all the Kennedy lore, you know. Um, sure, yeah, it is I a guess. fascinating I... topic, but I don't know. I don't. I um, maybe that would have been a place to put it. And Bugsy is is I think is probably the weak link for me here. So. That's for me. I bring this up because I think there's a direction snub that I want to talk about as well, which is for Beauty and the Beast. I think Gary Trusdale and Kirk Wise deserve to be here for that movie. I think it's kind of 
silly that animated movies are getting that they hardly really get any attention at all, right? It took until the 2000s to actually have a best animated feature category. And since then, we've been seeing more animated movies creep into the best picture race. I mean, basically, if you're a Pixar film, that's going to happen. Some of them are deserved. Some of them, I think, not so much. There's other animated films that I think should have broken into the best picture race in recent years. But we never see their directors getting nominated or their screenwriters getting nominated. And I think it says it says something to a larger point that animated films are somehow still viewed as lesser than, or they're children's movies, or they're just a family picture, so we're not going to give them as many nominations or take them as seriously as live-action films get. And I think that's kind of silly, especially with a movie like Beauty and the Beast, which scored, I think, six or seven Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. You bring this point up all the time where you're like, did it direct itself? Like, what was going on here? I think this is a great example of that, where... The two um, men who helmed Beauty and the Beast, arguably one of the greatest animated movies of all time, if not certainly Disney's greatest animated movie of all time. I don't think it's arguably. I think it's it's. It, I think I mean, it it's is. definitely one of. You could argue yes. that it is the best one of all time. Yeah. Yes, and I think it's a little silly that they were left off of the list. I yeah, I think that's kind of silly because again, I think animation deserves way more credits than the Academy seems to give it. So. And the thing is, too, like, think about how difficult it is to direct an animated film. Because yes. you're, you're dealing with, with so many elements that are so different from what a live-action film is going to be doing. Yeah. You know? And in a way, I mean, unless you want to count the fact that... Um, that we've we've given a best uh, director Oscar for the Lord of the Rings, which is a little animated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you shut your mouth about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I'm just we'll saying there's that. a lot of special effects. There's a lot of special. There's a lot of special effects that aren't right. unlike that aren't unlike animation. That aren't unlike in their Pixar. Own way. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. No, I agree with you. I think. Um, I'm really glad Beauty and the Beast is in the Best Picture conversation. I I question why it's on the Best Director. I mean, conversation, yeah. Uh, there are three movies that cross over between the categories, but the four movies that um, do not cross over, uh, there's arguments, I think, for all of them to be in the opposite categories. Yes. Um, and this there was are just a other really movies. stacked year. Yeah, it was. And there are other movies um, that are really, really great that came out this year. Um, like I mentioned, Defending Your Life. But I, I think that um, the Martin Scorsese version of Cape Fear is really, really good. Um, and Nick Nolte <laughs> gets a... Um, not Nick Nolte. <laughs> Robert De Niro. <laughs> De Niro. <laughs> Nick Nolte gets nominated for Prince of Tides. I just saw his name and it was in my head. Um <laughs> You know, uh, Fried Green Tomatoes came out this year, and that's a really great tearjerker movie. Jessica Tandy gets her um, second and last nomination uh, for this film. Um, this is uh, this is a pretty good year. I want to bring up Thelma and Louise. You just mentioned it. I think this is a really important milestone movie for 1991. So I'll just give you a little plot summary here, guys. Um, while out at a bar... 
Best friends Thelma and Louise run into trouble. Louise fatally shoots a man who is raping Thelma. And then the two set off together in their car trying to escape the police who are now after them. This is a road trip movie, but it really turns the plot on its head because it's also incredibly women empowering and it really <laughs> kind of, I don't want to say it talks down to men, but it really paints men in a negative light, right? I would argue, truthfully, I think it's sometimes honesty hurts and this these are issues that women deal with, right? I mean, a few years before we had Jodie Foster in The Accused trying to defend herself against her rapists and the men who cheered the rapists on. So this isn't like new subject matter um, that women are talking about here, but I think this one really goes even further because we have one of the women killing the rapist and suddenly that just turns everything on its head right and it's sort of like them having to defend themselves to other men who are trying to track them down and capture them and something i thought was really interesting reading about this movie and people's opinions on it when it first came out is there was a lot of hate for this movie it was more controversial than i thought it was a lot of men felt very threatened when this movie came out, which personally, I love. I eat that up. But I what mean, I want to ma- talk to you amen. about, amen, amen, is that yeah. this movie was directed by a man. Here we have Ridley Scott helming this movie about women empowerment, and I fucking love that because Ridley Scott is a really difficult director to pin down. Just when you think you know what his comfort zone is or the genre he's perfected he kind of goes off on a different tangent and does something wildly different right up until this point we've talked about movies like alien and blade uh runner. what was that blade runner blade runner yes two also yeah, yeah. kind of more sci-fi genre bending films but going into this movie now this is just such different subject matter and a different movie that He's a really important director, and I like that they give him his first direction nomination for this movie, and not for something sci-fi-y. And uh, let's keep in mind that we have another movie coming out. Um, Actually, there are two movies from him coming out soon Mm -hmm. to look forward to, one of which is called uh, The Last Duel. Actually, I think that's already been released. That did come out. Yes, it did. Yep. Yeah, we did. But that's not the one that's being pushed for Oscars consideration. The one that's being pushed for Oscars consideration, which is, once again, a complete left turn on genre, is uh, House of Gucci. (laughs) Yes. Yes, which I'm so excited for. Are we excited for it because we think the movies are going to be good? Are we are we excited for it because we just want to listen to Lady Gaga do an Italian accent for the entire movie? Honestly, honestly both. Honestly both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, what I have it? to see Father, How Gaga Son, does. House of House Gucci. House of Gucci. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's going to be wild. I can't wait for that. Um, um, so my real right. question here is... You're right. Yes, my real question here is we have... A double nominee here for leading actress for um, uh, both of our actresses in this movie. Here we have Gina Davis mm-hmm. and we have Susan Sarandon getting the nominations. I'm curious, which one would you give the Oscar to if it came down between uh, these two? I would give it to Gina Davis. Mm, I would but, go the you should, but you would also should keep in mind that I um, 
sometimes get frustrated with Susan Sarandon as a person. Um, so yeah, okay, I see where you're coming from. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, she's probably very lovely to talk to. We just uh, sometimes clash with the way that we approach our liberal politics. Um, right. Um, but uh, but also I. I, I just like I, I I'm gonna talk about Gina Davis again in a couple of years actually um whenever um, my favorite movie with her is it next year or the year after um whichever Which year yeah, yeah. come on there's no crying in baseball what oh is that we're 92 talking about or 93 um, oh, 92. 92 next year so next yeah, year 92. yep next year I'm gonna talk a little bit more about Gina and company um I, I just, I just really, I think um, I also just really like her. Um, you know what? Okay, I will agree with you here because I don't care for her performance in The Accidental Tourist, so I'm fine with Gina getting her Oscar for this movie instead because Susan gives us another great performance in Dead Men Walking in 95, so I'm kind of okay with Gina getting the attention here. But, you know, I, I think that this is a nice transition because um, what I want to spotlight... I think is mm-hmm. in within the best picture movie. Um, and I, so I'm going to kind of begin our transition into Let's the best picture it. category by starting with a nice spotlight on what I think is one of the best, best actress performances of all time. And that's Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling in the silence of the lambs. <laughs> get into it tell us about uh it. okay well if for some reason you live under a rock <laughs> um <laughs> the silence of the lambs is uh one of the most iconic movies of the last uh 30 years it um god it th- it's 30 years old um yeah yeah exactly yeah so are you <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> yeah accurate <laughs> um uh Jodie Foster um plays uh Clarice is a, a trainee with the um FBI and um she is put on a mission to basically do some research um by interviewing Hannibal Lecter um and what they what she discovers and the reason that they're getting her to do this is because they think he'll be more receptive to a young girl and um they also want to understand um a different serial killer um who is uh who is nicknamed um Buffalo Bill Buffalo Bill I almost said Wild Bill. Um, <laughs> different movie. Different movie. Um, uh, and they, um, there's just some similarities, uh, at least in mutilation of bodies, um, that exist. Uh, and Hannah Lecter is a genius and an incredible mind. And um, a the best parts of the movie, I think most people would agree, are these scenes between 
Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal and Jodie Foster as Clarice, where they have these intense conversations um, on one side and another of glass that um, is in his cell, separating him from the outside world. Um, But Jodie Foster, we have seen grow up at this point uh, from being a child actress, from being um, in things like Taxi Driver and The Accused excuse me, and Freaky Friday back in the day. I mean, she's she had several lives of a career uh, from being a, a Disney girl to um, being a serious actress. And in this movie, she affects a Southern accent that is sublime. Um, <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> and she plays somebody who has this trauma that is the source of the title of the film and is revealed through her conversations with Lecter. And she has to do this dance where she is afraid of the person she's talking to, but she's trying to emit confidence and she's reluctantly opening up because she knows she has to to get the information that she needs. After your father's murder, you were orphaned. You were 10 years old. You went to live with cousins on a sheep and horse ranch in Montana. And? And one morning, I just ran away. Not just, Clarice. What set you off? You started at what time? Early. Still dark. Then something woke you, didn't it? Was it a dream? What was it? I heard a strange noise. What was it? Screaming. Some kind of screaming, like a child's voice. What did you do? I went downstairs, outside. I crept up into the barn. I was so scared to look inside, but I had to. What did you see, Clarice? What did you see? Lambs. They were screaming. And then she's determined and wants to succeed as a woman in a man's world. Again, a big theme throughout this year is women persevering in men's world. Yeah, I just want to say, um, even you could even make make that argument with Beauty and the Beast, actually. But oh, um, you could. Oh, you could. Uh, but uh, but she. Ends up, uh, I mean, like, ultimately, one of the reasons I don't consider this a horror movie is I I think it's a thriller. I think it is, um, I think it is a very tense movie that has some scary moments in it. I think that ultimately it is a character story about uh, this young woman uh, coming into her own and finding her, her, her mojo, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and Jodie Foster's journey and the way that she plays that journey is just uh, one of the most remarkable performances and I think one of the top five winners. Yes. Oh, yes. I couldn't agree more. She's absolutely fabulous. And she handles, she plays every level in this movie so, so well mm-hmm. because you're watching her tiptoe around all these men, right? All these FBI officials who are ranked higher than her but are kind of giving her this in to help but at the end of the day as you explained they only have her helping because 
they know Hannibal Lecter will talk to nobody else, and they need his information to capture Buffalo Bill. So she's kind of being used here, and I think she gets that, but she also knows I have to play ball because this is my only in, and if I do this well, I will actually get to where I need to go, right? So they're kind of using each other in that, but she doesn't let that on to them. And yeah, and I think she's aware that they don't think she's as smart or as capable as any Mm -hmm. man. They just think that she's a tool. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, of course, what she does is is she goes above and beyond being a tool, and she ends up, oh, my God. um, Cracking the case. She solves the case. case. Uh, Without even, like, realizing she does. When she shows up to um, Gum, what's his first name? John Gum. Is it John Gum? I think it's what his name is. Yeah. Uh, Buffalo Bill's actual name. When she shows up to his house, and she's just kind of like there because she was following the trail has no idea that she actually found the man and then when she does realize it one of my favorite moments but of she's any she's movie doing the work honestly yes. um big spoilers everybody you should go see this movie i mean you've had so much time but you should go watch <laughs> yeah. it if you haven't um but uh i think one of the best moments in movie history and perhaps the best fake out in movie history mm-hmm. is when the FBI goes and surrounds the um, the house that they think Buffalo Bill is staying at. And it turns out then and the doorbell is ringing. So, you know, oh, they're there. Doorbell rings. Buffalo Bill hears a doorbell ringing because we just cut to inside his house. He walks up to the front door opens the front door um and the first thing we see is we see them open the front door and see it's an empty house and then we see him open the front door and Clarice is on the other side and she is in a completely different town in a completely different place than the FBI agents um and <laughs> and she is then left to stand off with this serial killer who um, is holding a senator's daughter captive at that moment. Um, thankfully, the senator's daughter makes it through, might I say. Yes. Um, also, the senator is played by uh, Diane Baker. Take this thing back to Baltimore. Who um, is in uh, a Hitchcock movie called Marnie. Just hey, there you go. Um, yeah. And she is in a Joan Crawford horror film called Straight Jacket, which yes. is super fun. Yes. She plays, plays her daughter. Um, and I met her on the streets in West Hollywood recently. Hey! <laughs> she's a, she's a friend town. of Turner Classic Movies, and I've seen her at Turner Classic Movies events, and I um, saw her outside of a post office. I was like, oh my gosh, Hi! You're mm-hmm. Diane Baker. I love you. And she teaches um, acting, I believe, now um, at a college. So she's had a very interesting career. But anyway. Um, Fabulous. There you go. But um, but uh, she ends up standing off against um, the villain of the film. And, in the dark. Uh, in, in the, the dark. dark. <laughs> and he has night, he has night vision. He has night vision yes. goggles. Yes, and we're seeing her move through his eyes, and it's shot so brilliantly. Jonathan Demme does a great job with this movie. 
But it does such um, a good job yeah. of talking about uh, her instincts, how her training, how she's applied everything, because mm-hmm. she understands in the dark she has to listen. Yeah. And she and she hears his breathing and and then well, she hears him cock the gun. Yeah, excuse me, I'm wrong. He yes, I was about to say. I was about to correct myself, Sam. I got um, you. He, he uh <laughs> she hears him cock the gun and the second she hears the noise, she's ready. She yep. turns, she fires and it's just um a beautiful moment. Um the one thing I will say about this scene is I don't know how anyone got a basement like that in their house it uh just goes on and on forever it seems to be a maze and i don't know how it was built or who i like i don't think you could add that to your house very easily um (laughs) no (laughs) probably not so i mean who has a a well like the ring in the their basement of their home i have no idea (laughs) i mean i i i don't know um but uh, yes, the whole the whole reveal is is absolutely brilliant, and um, yeah, the finale is incredible, and it does, as I mentioned last week, include when the moment that she realizes where she is, when the moth flies she, by, because she sees she, the moth fly by in the kitchen, and she's talking to him, and she knows he doesn't know she knows yet, but you see it in her eyes and her face, and her whole demeanor just changes. <laughs> God, it's then, so good. And then and what then, does she say? She says, Very good, Mr. Corbin. May I use your phone, please? <laughs> he says, Yeah, you can use my phone. <laughs> uh, and then he just gets, Oh, it's so good. It's such a good good movie. I think Jonathan Demme does a great job of creating this very tight uh, psychological thriller. Because I don't really classify it as horror either. I think it is a thriller. Um, and the psychological drama, because of these intense therapeutic sessions the two of them have together, it's... It's really, really revealing. This is also, you know, when this was released, um, one of the more graphic movies ever. You know, mainstream films, certainly. You know, we have a lot of gore in this. People might only be familiar with the the censored version. There's a lot of scenes cut out in um, versions of it when it's airing on TV and such, and, and such, but there is quite a bit of gore when you see, you know, the the cops strung up in the cell with his insides coming out, you know, or even Hannibal Lecter pulling the man's face off of his face. You know, there's a lot of very or graphic discover, violence. Yeah, and when they uh, even when you discover that corpse that's in the um, um, that's in the storage facility, you know, yes. the head. Yes, um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of shocking imagery in here, and I love that. Um, and that I, I love think that that's that didn't scare people horror. away. And yeah. I think that's why it's called horror as well, you know. And this is also an interesting Oscar winner as well because this was released on Valentine's Day. I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that it was released uh, on Valentine's Day. I think it's a little cheeky, and I think it's really, really brilliant. But so it early because the Oscars. In common. Sorry. It, it what think about this is similar to Get Out a few years ago, yes, which was yes, released in the first in the first couple of months of the year, and then mm-hmm. um, and then went on to get a best uh, picture nomination, and it is often classified as a horror film as well. Absolutely. Um, so it's it's they released them in that point point of the year because nobody expects a horror movie to be in the Oscar conversation, and yes. that's how this was classified, but. 
but it's it's it went so beyond that because it's so good. It did. And it, you know, it remained the top box office movie of the year. And that's really hard for a movie to be released in February to still be in people's minds and Oscar consideration come the following January. That's like 11 months of trying to maintain that momentum. And my God, this movie not only maintained momentum, it completely swept the top five Categories. This this movie lingered with people and still does, and that's why I think it is now considered a classic. But it did come with quite a bit of controversy. So I want to get into the controversy surrounding this movie, which was mainly coming from the LGBT community, our community. There were several groups up in arms protesting the Oscars, picketing outside because of the characterization of Buffalo Bill and bringing in transphobia into the conversation and also how this was you know, directed by a straight white man trying to comment on gay, queer themes mm-hmm. and the argument of gay characters only exist in film at this point to be the villain, right? Or as a plot device, right? So it seems that they were angry that this man who clearly, in their eyes, identifies as trans, he is stealing women's skin, skinning them to create his own female skin suit to live as a female. And what's interesting, when you when you hear, read about Jonathan Demme talking about this, he was very saddened to learn that the LGBT community was very against him in this movie. He always considered himself an ally, still does consider himself an ally, and he never considered Buffalo Bill as a gay character. He talks about how how Buffalo Bill um, isn't gay or queer. He is just so disgusted with who he is as a human that he goes to the polar opposite of what he considers himself to be, which would be female. So in Jonathan Demme's mind, he's not necessarily a queer character. He's just, I guess, mentally um, defunct, if you will. Um, and I'm curious to hear your take on that. What do you think of Buffalo Bill? Well, this is a good, this is uh, in a similar vein um, to Psycho, which um, had some unintended negative consequences. Um, I think Sounds of Lambs has had some unintended negative consequences in people's perception of trans people because ultimately neither of those movies are about people who are trans mm-hmm. that is a very important thing to mention he's he might be making a woman suit but he's not making a woman suit to be a woman he's not um he's not uh really expressly stated stated as being any sexuality he he may act very queer but he um, he is not mentioned to be gay. He is not mentioned to be bisexual. He's not mentioned to be straight. The movie isn't meaning to make a commentary on any of those things, I don't think. I think that is just told from a certain perspective of a certain generation that says, well, this stuff is all weird. We'll use this for the character, mm-hmm. you know? Um and I do think that that is perhaps the one drawback of an otherwise brilliant film because there are probably some moments that play off now as being very obviously gay tropes 
Yes, well, his I, characterization of Buffalo Bill, right? His more effeminate speaking pattern, um, the way he dresses, the way with his little dog. Like, there are very, like, yes, yeah, stereotypically gay yeah. tropes that he added to this characterization, which is why Although I think he's a also, lot of the community said he's obviously our family. Look at him. Yeah, but I mean, he's also capturing and torturing women. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, there is this purpose that he's doing it to make a woman's suit. Um, but I, I mean, ultimately that I think, I think his character really sends mixed messages as to what he might identify as. Um, but it's important for everyone to know watching a movie like this one, watching, um, Psycho, which I think is a little, actually probably less problematic Mm -hmm. Um, because it has a more clear psychological understanding of what its character is. Um, That, you know, a a guy dressing up as a woman, a guy putting on a dress, is is not what trans is. You know, trans women are women. Mm hmm Totally. And that was Jonathan Demme's point, is he's saying Jonathan Gum doesn't want to, doesn't think he's a woman born in a man's body, right? And his gender was just incorrect. He is trying to erase himself and create an entirely different persona because that's what makes him feel safe. Which I agree with you when you're saying Psycho has a more clear and direct psychoanalysis of this character, where I don't think we quite get that with Buffalo Bill, right? We're hearing some stuff from um, well, I mean, Hannibal Lecter is, in there. Yeah. We don't get the... Because in 1991, they didn't think we needed a psychologist to come in at the end of the movie and say, this is what happened. <laughs> which is very which true. is what happens in Psycho, and maybe that makes yeah. things more clear. But I, I, I think Psycho would be clear without that scene, personally. I oh, do yeah, definitely. think that there are a lot more question marks in Silence of the Lambs. Um, and I think it is those question marks that, that cause the issues because there is an interpretation of this that is very negative. And I think that more than whatever the reality is and what the characters are thinking or feeling, the the issue becomes putting out certain images and how that sets a community back because that changes the mainstream perception of what trans is. Because they don't understand the differentiation between a screen character who is mentally disturbed and what a trans person is. Especially for, like, middle Americans who are going to see this movie in a movie theater and they see this character on the screen, they're going to think, oh, a man who wants to be a woman, scary. They must fuck them up and cause them to kill people. That was kind of the narrative that the gay community was trying to avoid, this idea that a man struggling with his sexuality will then be driven to murder. Because we also get that trope a lot. A lot. It seemed like for a couple of decades, Hollywood couldn't write a gay character without making him either die of AIDS or kill people because he was angry at his sexuality. That was sort of the narrative for a very long time. This is, there have been other movies at this point that did not get the critical praise that the Lambs did, but there's a movie called Dress to Kill, Mm -hmm. which um, has... Uh, very offensive, like very overtly offensive uh, depictions <laughs> of <laughs> yes. um, 
people who could be interpreted as gay or trans. Um, or who are gay, maybe, in the movie. I forget I forget the specifics of that story, but it's very offensive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that much I know. Um, uh, wildly, the movie uh, is admittedly entertaining. I'm just saying it's also offensive as can be. Um, yes. But I think, but, to uh, add to that, though, I think the, part of the problem with Sons of the Lambs is that for the character of Buffalo Bill, the writers were pulling from several different serial killers, famous serial killers. They were pulling from people like Ed Gein. They were pulling from people... Um, Ted Bundy. Yes. They're pulling yeah. from Ted Bundy. They're pulling from all of these famous serial killers and kind of combining them into one. And I think that's yeah. why the character gets a little convoluted. Well, he captures... Yeah, the, the way that he, he gets his victims is very Ted mm-hmm. Bundy. Um, yes. Well, also skinning say, them alive and using their stuff for um, other purposes is very Ed Gein. Ed you know? Gein. Yeah, and, um, and Ed Gein was also, speaking of Psycho again, Ed Gein was also the inspiration for Psycho mm-hmm. um, as well. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't think there's any malicious intent on, on the part of the filmmakers, but, you know, similar, I think, to the conversation that trans activists are trying to have with Netflix right now. Yes. Um, you know, we are recording this um, after there was a, a walkout this last week. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the, the problem is the representation is not there, and people in middle America are not getting the contextualization or the knowledge or the education that mm-hmm. they need on what um, on what this actually is on what absolutely on who these people are mm-hmm. and um, and I, I I say similar to the Netflix thing the thing on Netflix is actually I, I think an actual a direct attack against trans people um, I think the silence of lambs is a movie from 1991 that needs to be contextualized Yes, and I think it was a case of where I think the filmmakers and the screenwriters obviously had the best intentions. They were just creating a scary movie and didn't understand what their depiction was going to do. I I agree with you. I think there was the best intentions. And we get that because Jonathan Demme talks about how, as I mentioned, disheartened he was that the LGBT community kind of shunned him after this movie. That he went so far as to make his next movie a gay-themed film. He comes out with Philadelphia. You know, which they also kind of tore to shreds because instead of having the narrative of a gay character going on a murderous rampage, now we have a gay character dying in, from AIDS right before our eyes, right? So he kind of did <laughs> both of the stereotypes, which I mean, poor guy, he was really just some. trying to, I know, he was really just trying to give a voice to that community. But this is the larger conversation we have where isn't it just better if we have a gay man or woman telling these gay stories because it's going to come from more truth and honesty and more heart to it. And I think that is such a difficult lesson for people to learn because we just want to tell stories to the best of our abilities. And what might be Jonathan Demme's best ability still probably isn't as good as if it was from a gay storyteller, right? He did his best and we have content from it, but it would have been better to have had more representation behind the camera helping him, you know? 
but yeah, yeah he was um, just trying definitely definitely needed some other voices in the room on the depiction of buffalo bill um yeah. which yeah. is which is a shame because i think other than that this is this is one of the greats it is one yeah. of the greats. We have a top five sweep here. Picture, director, actor, actress, screenplay. Let's get into the acting categories. We have we both agree Jodie Foster gives one of the greatest performances of all time. I would argue Anthony Hopkins gives one of the greatest performances of all time. But Rance, is it a leading performance or is it a supporting performance? It's a lead. It's a I think lead. it's a lead. It's a lead, I... he says. Okay, so we think 22 minutes of screen time is a lead now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think I don't think the I don't think screen time or screen percentage is what is what determines a lead. I think it's okay. I think it's are you the are are you the lead male character of the movie? How what kind of impact do you make in your screen time? And the fact is, you walk away from the Silence of the Lambs and you think that Anthony Hopkins was in that whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of those things where his presence certainly lingers in every single scene. Because if they're not talking to him in a scene, they're talking about him in a different scene. So you're right. He's brought up and mentioned a lot in this movie. And he definitely leaves an impression. Yes. I uh, I go back and forth on category fraud all the time. It's really hard for me to have a definitive answer here. My brain is telling me this is category fraud. He deserves to be in the supporting actor race. But my heart doesn't think that's right. I don't want him to have a supporting trophy for Hannibal Lecter, one of the greatest screen villains of all time. Uh, ah, You know what? I'll go with you. Yeah, he, he deserves lead actor. Mainly because, well... I'm looking at supporting actor, I'm kind of like, eh. Well, here's the deal. If he had been in supporting actor, it would have been the easiest win of all time because <laughs> I can see a couple of other leading actors that I wouldn't have minded stealing this Nick Nolte who won the globe uh, which doesn't really fucking matter but back in 91 that held some weight he won the globe for direct um, uh, excuse me drama actor and I kind of would have loved to have seen Nick Nolte win for Prince of Tides what a heartbreaking performance it's very different from <laughs> Anthony Hopkins so maybe if we had split it up, we could have had Nick Nolte and Anthony Hopkins both as Oscar winners tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then we don't get Jack Palance doing push-ups on stage. Rance, I just don't know what the win is here. <laughs> I, I think I think we know. I think it's I think it's right. I think it's okay. <laughs> I think you're right too. I um, think the Oscars got it right here. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that um, you know we think about the the big movies? You know, mm-hmm. um, we think about uh, Gone with the Wind. And mm-hmm. one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and um, uh, I'm trying to think of like movies that won a bunch. Um, Gigi, oh sure, Gigi Last Emperor. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I uh, not Last Emperor. I'm going for thinking about all these these big classics. Okay, mm. that have to have heavy context attached to them because of various reasons. Right. Um, even though they are also all-time classics and they are exceptionally well-made films, they have they have these problems of perspective. And the one movie that is one of the big winners uh, that uh, swept the Oscars that that we don't have to quantify and you can just enjoy without thinking about it. It happened one night. I asked you a simple question: Do you love her? Yes. But don't hold that against me. I'm a little screwy myself. I'm just saying it's been 
<laughs> it's been 60 some odd years of Oscar and a movie made in 34 is the one we have to say the least about before we start watching it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, just the gold standard. The gold standard. It happened one night. Doesn't it's weigh into will controversy. And be a classic. Doesn't Absolutely. Absolutely. do anything offensive. Um, very true. So category or controversy and category fraud aside... Silence of the Lambs is obviously both of our best picture winner of this year. So I want to ask you then, what is your runner-up? What's your number two best picture winner of these nominees? Of these nominees. I almost want to say JFK just to make you mad. But but Beauty and the Beast would be my number two. Mine too. Mine too, which I think is fabulous. Imagine if we had had an animated movie win Best Picture back in 1991. Where would we be right now with that animation category and all the snubbing that's been going on since the 2000s? I would have loved to have seen Beauty and the Beast take it. Maybe hand-drawn animation wouldn't have gone away. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Couldn't yeah. agree more. Couldn't agree more. Uh, okay. Okay. Guys, I hope you enjoyed our spooky themed episode for silence of the lambs uh we're gonna take a Even break we decided week, we'll it's not back. a horror movie correct <laughs> correct yes so we are going to take a break next week and then we'll be back the following week with regularly scheduled programming of our 1992 best picture winner which is unforgiven our second western in three years rance have you seen yes. unforgiven i have seen unforgiven I have two. I have two. Okay, cool. So this is going to be good. We've seen it before. This is also Clint Eastwood's first Best Director win. Um, My Best Picture isn't nominated next year. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. You know what? Um, I don't think mine was either. (laughs) That's okay. okay. (laughs) We are going to talk about all of that next week. Oh, actually in two weeks, guys. So be with us then for 1992's Unforgiven. Taylor's old as time True as it can be <laughs> Barely even friends Then somebody bends Unexpectedly May I use your phone, please? <laughs>